podcast was started as a supplement for my daily creative newsletter on Substack called The Honest Creative. Find more at honestcreative.substack.com. That's honestcreative.substack.com. Hello, boys and girls. Welcome to another episode of The Honest Creative Podcast. This is episode number three. I have with me here Rowena Roberts. She's a creative writing coach. And today we're going to be talking about writing and how to tap into our creative self. Hello, Rowena. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sergey. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, hey, the first question that I obviously have for you is, is everyone creative? Absolutely. Absolutely. I do believe that. And which is something that people find hard to believe because we reserve the word creative only for certain people, I think. That person's really creative. This person works in a creative industry. We've kind of co-opted it and sort of, you know, given it, packaged it and given it away to certain people. But absolutely, everybody has the ability to be creative in, in very different ways. And I think it's almost at the heart of what we're designed to do as people. We are designed to create. We are designed to add stuff to the world. Yeah, I totally agree with that. But still, I mean, you have a lot of people working in finance and consulting, and they don't think of themselves as creative necessarily. What do you think is the main difference between people who decide to tap into their creativity and people who, um, I don't know, don't realize, either don't realize that they're creative or just don't believe it? That's an interesting question. I've got somebody who's just completed one of my courses at the minute. He's an ex-army officer and creativity is, is nothing that had ever really entered his world. You know, it was very, it's more about discipline and organization, right. practical, get things done. But he's, he's left the army. He's working now for himself. And it's one of those things that he's just felt himself wanting to explore. And the connection for him came through nature. He was doing a lot more outside. He was taking the dogs to walk. And he was just finding that he was being more mindful of where he was and what was going on around him. And he just felt like he wanted to almost explore that mindfulness and see where it could take him. So he quite randomly signed up for my course. I think it was really on a whim. And it was just amazing to see what could come out of him. And it really was getting him in touch with that little bit of creativity and just encouraging him to play with it. I think there's a very big link between creativity and play. If you think of kids, kids are always creative. They're always coming up with something, some random stuff that's going on in their head, some game that they want to invent. I mean, you can discuss about whether it's good or whether it's bad or what kind of merit it has. But they start somewhere and then they build on that and then they get better and better and better. And I think where adults forget that they're creative is where they've forgotten how to play. I think if you can encourage them to sort of drop a lot of the self-consciousness and just muck around and see what comes out and then see what actually interests them. Once they connect with what interests them and what they're messing around with, that's when they can start to properly be creative, I think, in their own unique way. Why do you think we stop playing? Is it because of the social pressures? Is it because we don't think it makes money, uh, isn't practical enough? Um, at what point do we stop playing and why? I almost wonder whether education has something to do with that. It's very much like Definitely. this is your playtime and this is your work time and the two don't ever meet. You know, it's, it's, you, you go outside to play, you run around to play, you do this to play, you don't play with maths, <laughs> you don't right. play with science, you know. But in actual fact, you do. I used to work at the University of Manchester and there were a couple of physicists there who won the Nobel Prize for, dis not discovering, that's the wrong word, for, well, they created graphene, which is the world's sort of thinnest and lightest and strongest material and is now kind of revolutionizing material science all over the place. I met the guys who did that and they discovered it or they discovered how to isolate it. That's the word I was looking for because they were playing, they were messing around and they would, this is how they would um, progress a lot of their science. They would do the work and then they would set aside a certain amount of time each day or each week just to mess around with whatever it is they were doing, just to bounce ideas off each other and to just try things. And it was in the play 
not any of the work that they were doing that this kind of stuff comes up and you find that kind of story comes up so often in innovation it's either when you're playing or it's when you're not thinking it's when you're running it's when you're in the shower it's when right. you're you know meditating that's when these kinds of ideas come up and i think creativity has a lot to do with that part of yourself that isn't in the the working mind, you know, we tend to work from the logical mind and practically and get things done and do lists and plan. But creativity, I think you need to access another part of your brain that comes from that relaxed state of, of yeah, not, not, not that kind of hard working focused logical mind it is the, the space behind there. that I think you need to be able to access play can get you there. But that's just one of a few things you can try. Yeah, this reminds me of um, a story I heard about Alfred Hitchcock, the movie director. And uh, when he was working on a script, he would often just start telling anecdotes and jokes like in the middle of the work. And uh, his colleagues, at first, they just thought that this was just a peculiar trait of Alfred. But then they realized that he was doing it on purpose. And every time when they worked too hard, he would say, we're pressing, we're pressing too hard. We have to let go and let the creativity just be there because um, too often, and especially in the Western world, we are used to this idea that if we try harder, there, the possibility of us achieving the desired result is going to be higher. But in in the arts, in writing, and creativity, and just any artistic endeavors, it's usually the opposite. Like we have to let go and just have fun. And like my best ideas for articles and for books came when I was like. What if I tried this when I experimented, when I was like, oh, this is going to be fun. Uh, not when I pushed harder and like north of the 10th hour of work, right? Definitely, definitely. I have one workshop that I do that is purely on play. And it's, I read Lewis Carroll's poem Jabberwocky, which is just full of words that he's invented, some of which have now entered the, the, the English language. <laughs> But it's... It's one of those really interesting moments where you're just like, yeah, I can just invent words. And it yeah. just suddenly frees people up into this whole other world of expression. You're just like, how has somebody made up a word that relates to no other word, yet you somehow have a sense of what it means? And it really does open up the world of communication in a different way. It's a really fun workshop to do because people do come to workshops with certain sort of expectations or, or fears. I've got to be good. Or what if I say something stupid? Well, in a workshop where you're inventing words, there's no such thing as stupid. There's no such thing as wrong. And once you can free people from those kinds of expectations, which are always the expectations that come in under work, it's got to be good enough. It's got to be impressive. It's got to, you know, it's got to do this. It's got to do that. Whereas once you can let go of all of that and you can start to play, you almost take away the fear of failure because you can't fail if you're making things up. And once you've done that, and once you can start to play, then you can start to pick at things that are just like, actually, that's a little bit more than just messing around. That's a little bit more than play. That actually has something of merit that I can run with and I can develop further. So, so yeah, that's, that's always a fun workshop to try. <laughs> That's really interesting because it also reminds me of John Cleese of Monty Python fame and, and his famous talk, I think in the 80s or the early 90s, to a group of businessmen. And he said something that stuck with me that play and work coexist with each other. You can't have work if you don't have play and you don't have play if you don't have work because uh, mm -hmm. you know that play is play if you set aside two hours to play And then you know that you're going to go back to the real life. I want to use this as a segue to get into practices and uh, exercises that you can do to become more creative. You mentioned one, mindfulness and uh, meditation. I really want to know what you think about the role of meditation in uh, tapping into your creative self, because I've heard this and I, I've talked with uh, writers before and usually they usually have some sort of a mindfulness practice. For example, for me, I'm not really good at meditation, but I do yoga and uh, I find that when I go on long walks, I have the best ideas. Can you share some of the examples from your personal life and maybe from your work experience working with other writers? I think meditation is a, is a really good one, a surprisingly good one. And it doesn't have to be the kind of meditation where your mind is totally empty, because that's the one that everybody struggles with. Right. Because your mind is so, I mean, you would probably have to be 
either a certain type of person or be practicing you know buddhist meditation for 25 years on the side of a mountain somewhere to actually get your mind clear so i think people get distracted by that I'm, i can't do it because thoughts keeps coming in but there's um meditation really is just kind of getting yourself beyond that stage where you've got your monkey mind jumping in all over the place it really is about slowing down becoming more sometimes more physically aware of your surroundings what's going on in your body and just relaxing everything down and um, once you can get to that state it is a lot easier to get into that kind of creative mood so i do meditations with some of my clients i, I sometimes do them myself sometimes they are close your eyes and and listen to a story meditation sometimes they are writing meditations they are sort of you know like the artist's way the book by julia cameron one of the main exercises in there is free writing or morning pages as she calls it <clears throat> excuse me where you basically write three pages of whatever it is that comes into your head i do think of that as a sort of meditative exercise you're you're observing thoughts that are coming up into your head and you're writing them down and you're letting them pass so and that can actually be a really good way of letting all all the monkey mind chatter out just pour it out on the page there it's it's done it's gone now you don't have to deal with it anymore and usually you will find um, especially people who are quite nervous about their creativity or feeling blocked there's a lot of negative stuff that will come out in those things i don't know what i'm doing what am i going to write about this is all stupid blah 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 and once that's written out and done with, you can just go, right, okay, now I can focus on what it is I'm here to do. <laughs> right. I mean, uh, personally, I, like, I love the morning pages routine. I haven't been really disciplined in doing it for the last couple of weeks, but I did it for four months in a row, like every day after I read the Ar Artist's Way book, after I went through the course, which I highly recommend to all of our listeners. And one thing that I found, and this relates to what you just said is that uh, really all meditation mindfulness is kind of like letting your inner sensors or these gremlins just float on top and uh, see what they're saying and realize that they're not as scary as you thought they are because uh, like i find like in my experience that there's so much shame and guilt and fear and particularly fear of being embarrassed and like, or failure. And when I do the, these mindful practices, either it's yoga, meditation, long walks or morning pages, like all the, all this stuff just bubbles up and I, I, I can look at in the eye and just see that it, it, it's fine. Like, and I can just go on and do my work. Yeah, definitely. I almost think it's, it's quite, it's almost kind of a spiritual experience. I've had this in yoga before where you hear what's going on in your mind and all of a sudden you're aware that that's your mind and you are you. Yeah. And they're different. Yeah, <laughs> you, know, you have two of you, which, which is... Yeah, weird. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we, we tend to associate with our mind so much that we think that what is going on in our mind is us, you know. Right. But actually we have a deeper level of consciousness that is not just our thoughts or the words going around our heads that we can kind of separate from that. So I almost think that getting into your creative zone is getting away from that I am the mind mentality and looking into somewhere else where all of a sudden you're more aware of your physical surroundings and your body and you're also aware of more deeper things within you that want to be said. I mean, when people get into their creative zone, people talk about I was in the zone, I was totally creative. I, usually it's something that is, happens when you lost time you know you you've been sitting writing or painting or doing whatever and all of a sudden it's five hours later and you're like where did that time go that's because your mind has been quiet for that time i mean you may well have been writing down words and, and things like that but it almost hasn't come from there that if you've ever had that experience where you read back something that you've written and you're just like did i just write that i don't even yeah. really remember it you know and that's when it's totally coming out of your creative flow so yeah, to, to be able to get beyond those kind of monkey mind thoughts with meditation or with scribbling them out or however you want to do it, I think that's a really important way to get in touch with your creativity. Right. Um, and like when people are talking about creativity in this way that you come up with ideas that you didn't really have, or it was the cosmos or it was the muse or something, <laughs> uh, it, it often feels cheesy and as if like there's some 
magic to it or esoteric or whatnot. But I always remind myself that Adam Smith, when he proposed the invisible hand of the market, was probably seen as a crazy maniac. Like, <laughs> what invisible hand are you talking about? Like, dude, like we have yeah. potatoes to uh, bury or <laughs> whatever. Like, and uh, I think that there is so much we don't yet understand about the workings of our minds and how like creativity works. And I think that as um, the world becomes more automated and as as progress goes, more and more people will, will become creative and will dive into, and the research is going to dive into that, and we'll see a lot of new discoveries on that. I think that we are ready to answer this question, what is creativity to you? Like, because I think that a lot of people are, are listening to us right now, and they think and they wonder to themselves whether they're creative or not. How, how, how do we explain what the creative process uh, looks like, what it is? What is creativity? Okay, I'm going to go very deep here now. Yeah. <laughs> I've been reading a book by Michael Mead, who's um, a mythologist, and he's done a lot of um, work with um, sort of troubled youth um, programs in America. And it's called Fate and Destiny. And the idea is that you have a soul that has a particular destiny and fate is sort of the intervening hand that points you towards that destiny if you learn the right lessons or whatever. But what I really like about the book is that it kind of puts soul at, at this place because I, I kind of feel like in a lot of our lives where we have our day-to-day -day lives and our jobs and our tasks and our responsibilities and then we also have these other things that, that drop into our head that we don't quite know where they come from. I really want to do this. I really have a desire to do this. And that's kind of where spirituality kind of kind of comes in. The idea of do I have a purpose, you know, all those kinds of questions. Is there a greater meaning to my life other than the mundane? And I think because we don't have a lot of spirituality in contemporary Western society, certainly, people have kind of lost that element and they're kind of going along in the mundane. But the soul, according to Michael Mead, is this element that kind of unites them both. It takes the spiritual, the idea of the eternal, the principles and values that we have and that we live by and things like love, the things that unite us and bind us. And it embeds all of that into our day-to-day -day lives. So it's really like embedding stuff that gives us that kind of pleasure into our lives to help us live better but also to help us discover our purpose the idea is that each unique soul has a unique purpose I told you i'm getting quite deep here <laughs> um but creativity i feel is is exactly is it is aligned with purpose it doesn't mean that everything you create has to have some big purpose but it is something that only you can do and it is something that only you can contribute to the world and I feel it always has to have, if it's really authentic, it always has some kind of elements that people can relate to. Mm -hmm. So it does have those elements of big themes that unite us. It's a, it, loves, you know, it likes to be about love or emotion or depression or things that we can relate to on that kind of emotional level. But it is very specific to you, um, whatever you create, only you can create it, only you with your experiences, with your knowledge, um, with your turn of phrase, with your particular talent for capturing light on canvas, that kind of thing. It's, it is your own unique interpretation of these grand themes and you know, what we see around us. I think that's gone some way towards answering it. I can, I, I can elaborate a little bit more, but I feel like I needed a question now to direct me. <laughs> yeah, sure. So it, it, it's, it sounds like the more authentic you are to yourself, the more true you are to yourself as a creative person, the more valuable you are to other people as well. So it, it works both ways and uh, you don't even have to try. Because I, I think that, uh, I mean, in writing, I see this all the time and I usually do this mistake. We try to be general in writing. We try to reach as big as an audience as we can to get that exposure and to write for everyone. But what I found is that when I'm specific enough, I touch the hearts of many. Yeah. 
And, and, and that's a very interesting thing because you, you have to go the other way, not go into, not generalizing, but uh, being very specific and authentic. And the more you do that, the more you connect with the other people. Of course, you're never going to, you're never going to connect with everyone. Like that's just the nature of the creative work, but you have the chance of touching someone. And I, I think that's really important. I think so. Definitely. And I think if you're getting the reactions, then you know, you're, <laughs> you're going somewhere because there's things that people will really relate to. There's also things that will, will trigger people and you still kind of know that you're, you're touching on something there that's, that it can be recognized by people. So yeah, it's an interesting one. Interesting. I want to like finish our talk or section about creativity. Before we went live on record, you mentioned group work and the value of having a supporting supporting network to nourish your creativity. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Definitely. I think I first discovered the value of that because I spent years working as a copywriter and other than sort of writing, doing lots of writing for other people, I would do little bits of writing for myself, little bits of creative writing. But it was only when I went on a business writing course or retreat that I actually realized the value of being able to share this kind of stuff with other people. Because I think we're so used to thinking, well, if I'm creating, I'm creating by myself, I'm writing by myself, I'm drawing by myself, I'm doing, I'm, I'm writing a song by myself which is true, you're always doing it by yourself, it's always only about you. But getting the support from other people is actually really important in overcoming those first barriers to being creative, which are usually the mental blocks. It's the now is not the time, it's the procrastination, I've got all this other stuff to do. It's the inner critic, no, you're not good enough. It's the the part of you that is confused because you haven't done this stuff for so long. I don't know what I want to create. I don't even know what I want to say. Where would I start? And having a group to support you can actually really help. I think the biggest thing I found when running courses is that people are scared of sharing. And the first time they, they share, they're, they're all very nervous because they, yeah. they feel like they're going to be criticised for it. Or not necessarily outwardly, but they assume everybody's there thinking, oh, God, how terrible. While they are thinking about everybody else, you see other people's work and immediately you go to, wow, that's so amazing. I could never write like that. Well, of course, you could never write like that because you wouldn't write like that. You would write in a different way. But so that's the first level that comes up is that sort of fear of I'm not good enough. But that goes remarkably quickly because you start to realise that other people's work is very different from your own. They are expressing things very different from you. And because we're dealing with quite short, quick exercises on the spot, it takes away the pressure of having to do something utterly beautiful and perfect and well edited and everything. So you reach for what's there for you in the moment and you bring it up and you put it down on paper and it's very authentic as a result because you've almost done it in a panic and that is when you actually start to realize oh I can do this and it's actually quite good <laughs> and everybody is like that it doesn't matter actually how brilliant a writer you are everybody can come up with things in those moments that are meaningful or have some kind of beauty or will resonate in some way that other people can relate to and once you start working in a group like that um naturally your own voice starts to come forward and you can move on to then getting critiques on your work and things like that you can move on to looking at you know exactly how to hone your craft in in certain areas but it starts with that trying to find your own creativity and a group can really help nurture that in in quite surprising ways and once you get that motivation once you get over that fear of am i going to be good enough do I really have anything inside me that's worth creating? Then it, it, it frees you up very, very quickly, remarkably quickly. Groups are really good for that. Th thanks for that, Rowena. The reason I asked this is because I, I honestly had the opposite experience. When you're uh, mm. starting out as a creative, and I, I really want to talk to you about this because it's interesting to compare opposing uh, points of view. When you're starting out as a creative, as I see it, the most important task is to find your voice. And you don't know what, 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 what your voice is. I mean, you, you, you have no idea what you're doing. And what worked for me was shutting everything off, shutting everyone and everything off. I even didn't read comments. 
I was I, I was so afraid because one time I remember I wrote something and when you're beginning like when you're starting out as a creative uh you're so fragile you're so vulnerable like somebody can say and that's why it's really important to uh, to be a good parent when you have like a creative child growing up because if you say that oh okay this, this is not really good <laughs> this can be a trauma for for the child like when you go on and, and when the child grows up and when you're a creative when you even if you're 30 years old and you're starting out as a creative you have this uh, artist child inside of you and it's very vulnerable to criticism so my experience was that I completely shut off from everything and everyone. I didn't read any comments and I specifically told myself not to read other writers because on Medium, and I started out on Medium because uh, Medium is a platform that on one hand, it offers you this visibility, this exposure. I mean, you can write something and if your writing is good enough, if it's credible, it's gonna be seen by millions and thousands of people but uh, the backlash to it, like the other side, is that it's a double-edged sword because you have all those people writing and you subconsciously compare yourself to those people and the jealousy kicks in and the thinking and the gremlins that I talked about earlier, they start to become very loud and, and, and they say things like, okay, you're never going to write it like, like, like this guy. I mean, he has like 100,000 followers and who are you? And uh, I mean, this experience can be very toxic. So my experience was that I shot off completely from everything. I built my voice, my following, my exposure, and to be honest, my courage uh, mm -hmm. to be the writer that I want to be. And once I felt that I was comfortable enough to read other writers, to engage with my audience, I started to do that. But that was my experience and that, that's how I did it. And it's very interesting that you say that you have people coming to you who are sharing as they're writing their first drafts. So I find this very interesting. What, what thoughts do you have on that? I think it's important to, what we're both talking about really, I think is building resilience and yeah. different ways of doing that. Yeah. And the one way certainly would be shut yourself off from the rest and focus <laughs> on you and, and get it until you start feeling confident and you start feeling good about it. What I try and create with my groups is I will be very upfront about the kind of environment it's going to be. So I have three, three principles which I talk about, which are trust and consent and truth. And the first is, if we're going to have trust in this group, first of all, nobody can talk about what, what other people are writing about. We have to know that we have that level of trust. Nobody's going to go and shout about it anywhere else. Um, no one's going to try and pull you down. Consent as well. So if anybody writes something that they don't want to share, they don't have to. There's, I think that's quite important because um, you want to be, I want to encourage people to be as honest as possible in their writing. And if they're going to hold back because they think, I don't think I want to say this to other people, I'd rather they write it and not share it than not write it at all. And then truth, which, which ties in with what I've just said, I think it's important for them to be able to let the truth out. And if you can, and I do say, I have graduate groups where we do critiquing. Most of my courses, we don't do critiquing unless people specifically ask for it. What we will do is we will talk about how a piece made us feel or what came up for you as a result of it or your thoughts, how, how basically how you react to a piece rather than, oh, I think you should have used this word here or whatever. Because I think it is about that building resilience and in order to nurture creativity, you're right, it's a very vulnerable thing. Even if you're not talking specifically about your own experiences or, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a sort of form of therapy it's still very vulnerable, releasing what is essentially part of you out into the world. So I think in group work, you have to have that kind of environment at this level of creativity where you're trying to nurture it. As you get more confidence and you go on and you can you know, open yourself up to, right, I want to be able to improve things now. And then you can start opening yourself up to critiquing and then you know, put it out on the on the World Wide Web for horrible people to troll you on. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, you do want to get to that level at some point, just be perfectly right. happy and I want to be able to put out this, this out without worrying about what X, Y, Z says about it. <laughs> right, right, right. It's, it's all about building that resilience that you mentioned. I love that you say that. I want to ask you this and use it as a segue to dive into the talk about writing because you're a writing coach. What kind of feedback should a writer seek? Because 
not all feedback is equal, right? You have feedback from people who are just readers. And I mean, it's valuable feedback often, and you often learn more from your readers than from yourself or other writers. Uh, but still, I mean, uh, how, what kind of feedback should you be seeking out? And how do you use that feedback to really improve uh, in your craft? It is an interesting one, that, because I think on the one hand, it's, you know, it's very easy to sort of say, seek out the experts in your field because they will have top tips. And there's so many great books on writing, like Stephen King's um, book on yeah. uh, craft. And yeah, I can, I can think of quite a few. But, and I think it's really good to be able to read those kinds of things. They will have very excellent top tips on, on how you go into sort of expression and, and things like that. I think having a group, a supportive group, who will actually give you valuable critique who who are writers maybe they're professional maybe they're sort of pro amateur or whatever but they know a lot about they've read a lot they know a lot about writing they can tell you sort of where to tweak and things like that but also really your readers and your readers can can give you surprising feedback that is that can be far more valuable um, than the assumptions that some of the some of the experts will actually have because you can think it's almost like <laughs> Having worked in advertising, I always think of like the award ceremonies for different advertisements and things that have come out and everybody's clapping themselves on the back and going, oh, that's really good. You know, it's wonderful. And then you look at the people who are watching the advertisements going, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> are you actually yeah. selling anything with this? You know, the creative people are all congratulating themselves, but sales are dropping, you know. So, yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, I think there has to be, you have to have an element of both, I think, if you're seeking feedback. It's got to be people who ideally who you admire who you would see as a mentor whose writing you you think is is the kind of writing you would love to be able to do or aspire to get feedback from those kind of people but also who your audience are never forget who your audience are and always seek feedback from them do you understand what i'm saying which you know how do when i express myself this way or that way which how how do you prefer it so yeah i think broad but, but focused on who your audience are and who you most aspire to be. I absolutely agree with that. I just want to add that a lot of ambitious, driven people enter the creative spheres like writing because they think that creativity is subjective and you can't like there's no competition right like you can't compare writer a to writer b because everyone writes differently and it's all subjective and blah 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 but subjectivity like it's this very warm blanket that you can cover behind and but i don't think it's necessarily true because any writer who makes money professionally writing sooner or later and usually sooner realizes that uh writing and creativity can be very objective because you have metrics, you have money made, you have audience, you have readers love. And of course, like people's love is subjective. But I mean, when you look at it at a big enough zoom as a collective, it becomes very objective. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, uh, I totally agree with that. You always have to uh, remember who is in the audience, what they're waiting for. And as Seth Godin says, what they can't miss. Hmm. And th that's what you should be creating. Let's talk about writing. Online writing, and we talked a little bit about that before we went on record. Online writing is very different from long form writing. How so? I think most of it really just has stuff to do with the screen, uh, you know, small screen, and why you're there. You know, generally we're looking for information. If you're reading a book, you're looking to kind of sit back in the sofa and you've got, you know, time to spare and you kind of want to sink in and you've got time to linger over paragraphs and all that kind of stuff. You don't tend to do that online. You're there because you have a mission in mind. And sure, you can be looking for entertainment, but you're not going to sit there and, you know, put your hand on your, on your wrist and lose yourself in text for a couple of hours. It doesn't work like that. And I think you just need to be able to get your points across in a more concise way when you're, when you're writing online. You can't do it the same way that you would long form writing in a big essay or in a novel or something like that. And there's also the issue of scrolling. People just get lost in big chunks of text. So things like headlines and subheadings and 
paragraphs that are just dedicated to one or two thoughts before you move on to the next one so you can skim read it easier all those kinds of things are just more important um, with online than they are with any kind of printed documents i think yeah i think that when you write for online and it's a bit weird to say even that because i, I think that everybody writes online for online in in today's <laughs> world um you have to always keep in mind that the readers are very impatient they want everything fast. They want everything now. And uh, more so because you have so much content, like the, it's abundant. Every day you have more books being published than you can possibly read in a lifetime. Yeah. Uh, this means, A, don't try to read everything. Like you, this fear of missing out that you as a reader are constantly going through. But B, keep in mind that readers have so much to choose from. You really have to give them something extra, something unique, something yours, something that they haven't seen before, and you have to convince them. You have to try extra hard to convince them to click, to open your book, to do something, to engage with your content. Uh, whereas like 100 years ago, there were like, I don't know, like a thousand, a 10,000 times less books and articles published. And uh, you really uh, could be quite lazy as a writer and still get away with it. Yeah. That's true. And while I don't really hold with sort of clickbait and titles that um, aggravate and, yeah. and or anything like that, I do think you you also do need to be a little bit creative in how you structure what it is that you're writing. So it's not just right. I'm going to write about creativity. It is things that people can take away. You know, they want to look at it and go, what am I going to gain from reading this? So if you can give them something like, okay, here are five things that you definitely need to start implementing to yeah. be more creative. People yeah. are more likely to want to read that than why is creativity important? And then you've got to troll through a, a lot of information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pe pe people hate lists. I mean, when you see like a headline that five things you need to take care of, blah, 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 it usually sounds like a clickbait, but it's usually like the most valuable content that you can find online because people actually like lists. And like yeah. our minds work in a structured way. I mean, lists are valuable. Um, like one thing that you mentioned before is clickbait and the problem of clickbait. Like for a long time, I was debating how to find this balance between valuable content uh, while being seen. And quite recently, I came to the conclusion, and you might want to agree or disagree with that, is that instead of searching for new audiences, for new followers, just take care of the audience that you have and make them feel as if this audience is the only one that mattered. And then new readers will see that and come as a byproduct, as a natural byproduct of you just taking care of your little pool of audience, even if it's 100 people. I think that this mentality uh, online, that is very prevalent online, that you have to just be a million uh, follower uh, blogger and that you have to have 100,000 subscribers on Instagram, yeah, I think it's really toxic, this mentality. I think that because there's abundance of content, you really can't, as a writer, as a content creator, you can't have everyone read you, which means that you have to find a niche, a very specific niche, and just be with that and build a very engaged and close community. What kind of thoughts do you have on that? Definitely. I, I definitely agree. And I think if you can do that, you actually get the chance to go a lot deeper. If your audience is broad and you're trying to, you know, do something for everyone, you can only go deep if you do it in little little pieces. You can't possibly go deep and broad at the same time. It doesn't work. But if you can look at who your audience is and make sure that you are just answering their questions, serving them deeply, you're asking them questions, saying, what is it that you need to know about? What is it you're stuck with? How can I help you? Then it helps you to go much deeper into that one little area that in actual fact lots of people are going to want that's what other people miss as well this idea that you've got to go broad yeah to attract more people it's no well no if this works for some people it's actually going to work for a fair few more yeah you, know, you don't need to speak to the whole world but if you can get a thousand people who are actually really interested in that that's an amazing audience to have yeah who yeah, really yeah yeah who are really getting a lot from what you're doing and uh in a way, that's a competitive advantage too, because you have so much content online. Like, just type "how to" and you like blank space, and you you, you can find like information on every subject. But if you and it's all very 
broad and clickbaity and salesy and there are a lot of ads and but this was like blogging like of 2000 to 2010 like uh, mm-hmm. the new blogging the new like content creation online is all about depth and mm, I think that's one of the way to leverage uh, what Kevin Kelly's true fans model right if you have 1000 people who absolutely love you just 1,000 people, you can charge them like, I don't know, $5 per month and you have 5K per month coming uh, your way, that's a good income. And you're you're not selling yourself short writing uh, clickbaity pieces and you're doing meaningful work. But for a very specific audience, I really believe that like the top bloggers and the, the most successful content creators of the future are going to be all about depth and niches and uh, very engaged communities where they provide as much value as they can. Definitely. And that has longevity as well. I mean, clickbait only gets you, you know, a load of people straight at once and then they all disappear because what do they have to stay for? (laughs) Yeah. What are some of the ways that you see, not ways, but mistakes that people make writing online in your work? I think a lot of people are quite scared to be authentic. Authentic is this big, it's almost like a buzzword at the minute. Everyone must be authentic, but but it's such a mistake to use it as a buzzword because you can't, you can't fake authenticity. And I think there's a lot of people who write with the intent to fit into a narrative or to please a certain audience or to actually yet just be broad and, you know, not upset the apple cart, you know, not, not annoy too many people. And they don't ever really get to the, the depths of what it is that they want to say. Mm. Um, and I think there, there's a lot of value at the minute in being able to put your personal spin on what's going on because people really resonate with, with, with other people. And if you can talk about something um, and give an example of how it's affecting you in your life, you tend to find those are the kinds of things that people react to quite strongly on social media. So it's not just keeping it at this very detached professional level that always used to be the case of this is how you are businesslike. Now it's a case of actually this is my personal story, how it relates to this. These are things, these are struggles that I've been through and this, these are the lessons I've learned from that. Those kinds of things get a, get a lot of traction on, on social media these days. And I would also say you can also spot the fake ones who do that. Yeah. yeah As a method, you know, people are just like, be authentic and do this. But you can spot the ones who are, who are doing it just to sort of, I'm trying to hook you in, I'm trying to push your pain points here. I think it's the kind of thing that people when they initially tried it it kind of worked because they saw other people doing it it worked but now everyone becomes quite savvy to the latest trends quite quickly so it's, it's quite easy now to see when people are using it as a manipulative way and when people are actually just being genuinely authentic so i think there are people who think that authenticity means a certain thing but actually it really does mean forget about what other people are saying don't worry about other people's stories don't try and copy that story and say yeah yeah i I relate to that think genuinely about what your own story is what lessons you have learned and what is it that drew you to do the work that you want to do and share those kinds of authentic stories and um, i think that can that can really help people when it comes to writing online to getting an audience and keeping an audience And another thing that I think can help people tap into this authenticity and vulnerability is paying attention to how they feel when they create this content. Those people that use vulnerability as a tactic, the ones you mentioned, it's the case of people trying to be vulnerable without feeling vulnerable. But it doesn't work that way. Like uh, you have to really feel vulnerable, like feel naked and scared, and like uh, I don't know, sweaty hands, and uh, like I don't know, just palpitations and whatever. You have to go through these experiences, and they're painful. But every time when I experience them, I know that I'm doing something meaningful. And every time when I'm I'm writing something and I'm not experiencing them, I know that I'm probably like like make making soft edges somewhere and like I, I, i'm probably selling myself short or trying to be too generic and not really authentic enough but it, it, it's interesting that you say so i also think that a lot of people as as you mentioned use vulnerability as a tactic and they almost share too much like uh, like their personal sex life or i don't know like the, 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 like I, I i saw a lot of that on medium and just 
freaks me out sometimes, but sometimes it just turns into yellow press and glamour magazines. But yeah, I think that sharing, oversharing is a problem too. And there needs to be a balance here. Yeah, I do tend to feel if authenticity is the key. And I, I love what you just said about being aware about how you're feeling as you're writing yeah. things because creativity and all that kind of stuff has an energy that comes through, I think, that can kind of carry you away. And and yeah, if there is emotion coming up, that that somehow does get transported in what it is that you're writing. Um, yeah, 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 um, absolutely. I, I found that when you're writing something and you're you're having fun doing it and fun can be like being emotional or i don't know just having fun your readers will have fun as well and if you're like mm-hmm. just with a po- writing with a poker face <laughs> you, that, yeah. that's how your readers are going to read it right i mean this feeling kind of transports and content becomes the vehicle for the emotion that you're trying to convey it does it does and in those kinds of instances i think where people are oversharing they're generally doing it out of a desire to do some kind of shock tactic yeah <laughs> that is yeah. generally the first thing that comes across isn't it it is kind of like whoa yeah so yeah i think your motivation whether you realize it or not does tend to come through in, in how you're writing yeah it's interesting so you basically can't trick anyone not even no. yourself when you're doing this <laughs> no no Having been one of those people who at, at some stage in, in marketing, it suddenly became the idea to make everyone feel really, really bad about themselves. All the pain points and go... To yourselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't you love to be this kind of person? And this is when this whole sort of six-figure, seven-figure, you know, yeah. blah, blah, blah marketing came out. And I think people have a sense... There, there are people who have been who have been taken in by these things and have gone down that path. But I think if you, you always have a sense of it at the beginning, there's always a sense of, does this make me feel good or does this make me feel bad? Right. Generally, if it's making you feel bad, that's not a reason to go after it. Whereas if you're identifying with a story that somebody has shared about you know, how it's felt for them and it's starting to make you feel good and you're just like, yeah, okay, I actually feel a sense of relief talking about this rather than a sense of panic and a sense of lack. That's always a, a, a good um, barometer, I found, for, for being able to um, sense what's going on in people's writing. <laughs> Amazing. Books. What is their place in uh, today's world? I love what you said before we before we went online about books being a souvenir, because they, they kind of are. I like the fact that these days you get... I really take pleasure in a beautiful book. Yeah. You know, something that, that looks good, that is beautifully bound, and something that I want to keep. I have a lot of books I have on Kindle and on Audible. And what I will tend to do is I will tend to download the extract, start reading it, and then decide from that, is this a book that I want to read and skim through and get the information from and then, you know, then leave? Or is this a book that I want to buy and I want to keep and I want to go back to and reread? And it's always the books now for me are the ones that I want to keep. They either have a lot of wisdom or it's a beautiful story or it's um, a reference point for me. Whereas there's a lot of books that I will download i will listen to on audible as i'm doing other stuff get the information in or you know enjoy the story if it's if it's a novel and then leave leave behind so i actually quite like the fact that there's there's lots of different options now so i only get to keep the i only have the books that i really really genuinely want to keep now (laughs) yeah i mean in my view there are two ways to approach books as a reader and as a writer as a reader I know that there is so much content online. And as I, as I said, more books are being published every day than you can possibly read in a lifetime, which means if the book is becoming boring, I don't have to finish it. And like, yeah. I, 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 used to, I, I used to just like kick myself for doing that. And, uh, but, but now I just view books as blogs and like every chapter is a blog post especially if it's a non-fiction book uh, mm-hmm. and, and and you typically find that uh people usually finish fiction books but don't finish non-fiction books right uh mm-hmm. because when you have a fiction book you have the story that you're that that the whole book is wrapped up around and you just want to get to the end of the story some of the yeah. best non-fiction books are also written as stories and they use storytelling so you 
approach, and I usually read like three to five books at a time, and especially if they're nonfiction books, because I know that there is no sense in uh, finishing or doing something that you don't like, or if it's boring, or if it's not giving you value. That's one approach. But the second approach is as a writer, I understand that as a content creator, I understand that doing this, what we are doing right now, is the fastest way to get an idea across people's minds and with the biggest leverage possible. I mean, podcasts are the new books in a way that if you want to get an idea across to a podcast or write a blog post, that's like the easy way. Your blog post can go viral on Medium and people can read it in five to 10 minutes and they get the idea and they connect with you and you you get to do what you want to do as a content creator. But books, they they find a very different uh, place in our society. As I said, they're souvenirs. And in a way, you can write books by writing blog posts and like collecting blog posts and uh, making books out of them. And I see a lot of nonfiction writers do that nowadays. And uh, you shouldn't be afraid of your content being redundant or duplicated because not everyone is going to read your book. And I find that books are souvenirs because if you really like someone, like as a writer, uh, you would subscribe on their newsletter or blog and you would connect with them one-on-one. But if you really love someone, you're going to go buy a book in appreciation of their work to show that you respect them to like, it's almost like a donation, right? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I do agree. I do agree. I think a lot of people use books to show their area of expertise at the minute, which I actually I do think is a good thing. It shows that you've devoted enough time and attention and care and, and research and thought into actually producing something around what, what your area of research is. So yeah, I, I, I do think that's a good thing. And exactly, people can buy into that or not. They can just do the newsletter, they can just read the blogs. But I, I, I do agree, I think um, if you really like someone, um, and it can be it can be nonfiction. It can be there's there's a woman who does a, a blog called Hurrah for Gin, which is just little stick diagrams about her life with her kids, and you know generally um, along the lines of oh my god, how do I cope as a mother? And she's a really successful blogger, and she's done a book which is basically you know different different um, illustrations from her blog, and people buy it because because yeah they they love her blog and they kind of want to support that and and it's nice to have a lot of what you really genuinely like all there in one package rather than yeah 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 yeah. it's almost like a yearbook of of your blog (laughs) and like it's something that when we started talking uh, before we went record i told you that i write on medium but i'm quote unquote not yet a real writer and like this thing, I mean, I, I used to blame myself for not writing books, but writing blogs. But now I really think that modern writers are bloggers and newsletter authors and a book is becoming something extra once you have the audience. If you look at what publishers are doing, you can't go and just publish a book the traditional way anymore. You have to have what's called an author's platform. You have to have like an audience of people because, and and that's why you see all those TED celebrities and uh, whatnot, like movie stars writing books because they have this platform, they they have fame, right? And like the publishers uh, operate almost like venture funds. They know that uh, these people are gonna sell books. So they basically ask them and uh, to write a book, uh, to sell it and to make extra money. But I don't think that um, a book is the pinnacle of achievement for a writer in today's world. It used to be. Uh, right now, I think that you can, uh, the barriers to becoming a writer are low. Like you can become a writer today with like just a laptop and uh, a brain and you can start writing on medium and you're a writer. You don't have to write books to call yourself a writer. I I think that's a very important transition. And it's something that I personally am still struggling with. And I, I, I guess many our listeners as well. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. I think, especially how you started with, I'm not, I'm not a real writer. It's it's yeah. an interesting question of where where does that line, where is that line drawn now? And it definitely used to be you can only call yourself a real writer once you're holding your published book in your hand. But especially when you can self-publish now, when you can print on demand and all that kind of stuff, it's just yeah. like, well, where's where's the line then? Where's the line? Yeah. And 
most of it just comes down to who wants to read you, I think, is, is um, the question that needs to be answered now in terms of are you a writer? It's just, like, yeah, who, who is it who wants to read you? Who gets what from reading you? And yeah, it doesn't have to be a book. Books almost entered the realm of, at one stage, it was almost like snobbery. It's just like, yes, I've, I've published a book. Whereas now, whereas you're just a blogger. Whereas now, who gives the most value in terms of what they're writing? Who wants to, I mean, if you have a blog, you can theoretically be read by anyone across the world. Whereas if you publish a book, you've got to wait for that book to be published in, Absolutely. Absolutely. in different languages. So, so yeah, I mean, quality is, is a different kind of mark and everybody likes to argue over exactly what makes a, a good writer there. But if you're getting read and if you're getting reactions and if what you're saying is, you know, is heartfelt and important to you and valuable, then, then yeah, you're, you're a writer. And, I mean, the internet is pretty much the greatest revolution I can think of in terms of the last hundred years and how it's opened up the world to different ways of thinking, to different ideas, to all sorts of knowledge that you can now have in your back pocket. I don't think we can afford to say anymore that, yeah, you're, you're only a writer when, you, when you've produced a book. It, definitely the kind of reach and influence you can have as uh, somebody who has a podcast or somebody who has a blog or someone who has a newsletter with you know, thousands of subscribers, you can't underestimate that. It's, it's truly valuable and it's amazing as well. I love this kind of world where, <laughs> where we can have this kind of reach and this kind of influence and... Um, People talk about finding your tribe. I love the idea that you can now write things that are very personal to you that people can relate to on the other side of the world and they can, you know, access it that very same day. I think that's incredible. I want to talk about uh, the demon and the inner genius that uh, every creative person has inside of them. I really find this idea inspiring and for those uh, listeners who aren't familiar with it, can you just give us a brief context of what this inner genius creature is? Yes, definitely. Well, I think it was the ancient Greeks who first sort of thought of genius as something that was external to you. It's slightly different from a muse. A muse was something that would inspire you that was definitely external. Genius was something that was very much related to you and kind of part of you, but but not you, you know, it was um, your genius that was producing this. And then in recent years, we've come to think of it, as you said earlier, um, in the enlightenment kind of area, it became associated with this person is a genius, much the same way as we've just discussed about this person is creative, that kind of thing. And everybody has a genius, everybody is creative. Um, we've just got to discover it and play with it and see see what it, what it has to say. But I do a workshop called Meet Your Creative Demon, and it's based on the idea that we have a little creative force within us, a little spirit that is slightly different from us, that is totally focused on your creativity. And that, I called it a demon from Philip Pullman's um, series of books, His Dark Materials, where there's, which is based in another world where people have demons that are basically animals, some of them real, some of them sort of mythical. And the idea is that they're separate, but they're connected and they share certain qualities. And it says something about the person, what their demon is, but they're also separate. They have separate thoughts. They have separate desires. So I had this idea of a creative demon that everybody has within them. And it usually does take the form of some kind of creature that people can kind of attach emotions and images to you know these creatures have specific attitudes that aren't necessarily reflected in the person and they have specific desires um, as to what they want you to do in your life in order to release more of what it is they want to put out into the world and it's it's a great way of being able to connect with that creative part of yourself I think because I kind of feel like we all have different parts of ourselves that need us to put certain practices in place in order to feel fulfilled you know um, and if you're neglecting that creative part of yourself it's got a lot to say about it if you actually tune in and, and listen to it it's, it's going to tell you off <laughs> yeah I, I think it was Stephen Pressfield who said in uh, War of Art that your demon is there no matter whether you tap into your creativity or not 
And mm -hmm. if you don't do what your demon says, it's gonna find a way to be heard. Like, y you know a lot of stories about writers who suffer from a blog and killed themselves or uh, were drinking or on drugs. And it's probably because this demon wasn't listened to or wasn't appreciated enough. In some way, it's a destructive and a constructive force at the same time, right? Yeah, yeah. I read that book after I um, started creating these these workshops, and I love that he used demons. Like, oh wow! But yes, definitely. And I think if you can kind of tap into that and figure out what is it that the demon wants, you can create a much more healthy relationship with with it. The because it knows it knows what it is that it wants to say it knows what's important to it and sometimes it will tell you and sometimes you have to kind of work a little bit harder sometimes your demon won't speak to you sometimes you have to look for clues it's almost like using your intuition a little bit you have to figure out what does it look like okay and what does that tell me what associations do i have with it what's the attitude that it has towards me how can i build a relationship with it that is actually going to nurture it and and me at the same time, you know. Like you said, you don't want to end up feeling like, right, okay, I've got to get completely drunk in order for this creature to come and kind of take over my body and, and start writing for me. You want to have some kind of healthy relationship. And what I find really interesting about it is that doing this kind of exercise, getting people to... What I do is I take people into a meditation and then take them to a, a place where they get to meet their demon. And... Everybody is always surprised by what comes up. And that kind of tells me something, you know, because I think people are just like, am I just making this up? And it's like, well, if you're making it up, why are you surprised by it? You know, I, I think there is an element of truth. There's some, something that we know about ourselves that comes to the fore a lot easier when we're thinking of an image than when we're sort of writing down specifically, this is what my creativity wants or something. It's almost like the power that metaphor gives to language. You know, it, it makes it bigger than more symbolic and um, more kind of layers of meaning. And I tend to think of that as similar to when you have a demon and you can visualize it and you can, you know, put it in your imagination that way. It also makes it more fun to work with. Again, that element of play that we were talking about before. It's, it's great fun when you can sit there and have a little chat with your creative crow or whatever it is that comes up. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned that you guide people through a certain type of meditation. Could you describe in more detail what it looks like? Well, what I do with this specific exercise is this is a sort of close your eyes meditation and take people into nature, take people into a bit of a walk. It's a little bit like the sort of early stages of hypnosis for people, but it doesn't go that far and generally sort of take people to a place where they know or they're familiar with or I quite like to use a garden, you sit down and then you invite your demon to come up to you. And then it's a case of what kind of questions you want to ask it. And usually I will, I will stick with quite a basic one initially when people meet them and just sort of say, what do you want? And, and wait for those kinds of answers. And sometimes they're very specific and sometimes they're not. And sometimes nothing happens, but I quite often find, well, I, I always find in that case, if nothing has happened, something will happen either later on that day or people will have mad, crazy dreams and wake up in the morning with other answers in their head. So I think it kind of starts a process of you thinking in a different way or being able to access something that, again, is not you thinking logically. It's more about, right, what, what weirdness is here inside me? What is it that is meaningful to me? What shape or form does it take? And yes, what, does it, what is it that it wants to say? I think that's at the crux of getting to the heart of people's creativity. We are creative when we have a motivation to be, when we have something that we want to put out in the world that's important to us. And, uh, and the demon is just kind of a little, a little companion on your journey. <laughs> a little way in that points at things for you and go, well, take notice of that. That's important. You might want to consider it. Wow, that's amazing. That's definitely something I should look into. Do you do, you do those courses online right I now? I do, yes, yes. I've got a course um, called Right from the Heart, which is an, an eight-week course. I use the Creative Demon, though, in a workshop in all of my courses because I find it really helpful. And even if people have done it before, they will always get something that's quite new from, from the experience. I also do the workshop as a one-off 
for, for occasionally for people who, who are really interested in it and want to experience that. And actually that will work for people who aren't writers as well. I've, I've done it for um, groups of people who are like illustrators or artists as, as well, because it's a, it's a similar thing. It doesn't necessarily have to be writing, but it is in, in all of my writing courses. Amazing. Rowena, thanks so much for taking the time. I have one last question for you before we wrap up. It's our traditional question. What is an honest creative for you? What comes to mind? It definitely comes down to authenticity for me. I think if you can, because having worked as a creative in advertising for, for many years, I always really enjoyed being able to give people a voice who found it difficult to communicate what they were good at and why they were good at it. So in that instance, the honesty and the authenticity was coming from those people and I would kind of try and be a channel for it. But having left that behind as I felt it was becoming more of a manipulative kind of world and not, not an area I wanted to work in anymore. What I always want to do with people is to tap them into that authentic part of themselves because that is where you find your flow. That, that is where the, the work kind of takes over and, and comes out of you without the, the effort that we generally associate with work, without sitting there with a frown on your face and going, oh, what is it that I'm trying to say? When you can tap into that kind of level of authenticity, that is when creativity just just flows yes and honest creative i i think um is a perfect way to describe that i definitely wish everyone who's listening to us right now to find the courage to be more authentic and uh, vulnerable in their writing or any content that they're creating Rina, thank you so much where should we send people in case they have any questions or want to connect with you I've got a Facebook page and Instagram. My business name is Words Inspire. So that's Words Inspire UK is on Facebook and on Instagram. And I also have a website, www.wordsinspire.co.uk. You can find me there. And we'll definitely have everything in the show notes. Uh, Rovina, thank you so much. This was almost like a therapy session for me, but this was nevertheless very interesting. I'm so glad we connected. We should do this again soon. Thank you. Definitely. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Before you go, make sure to stop by my daily newsletter on content creation as a career. You can find more at honestcreative.substack.com. 